friends, once again, for joining us. You know what? I'm somewhat enjoying this, but I'm not, not too much, Lord, you know, like, um, but it is still a blessing to be here and doing this. Well, friends, we are making our way, continuing through Matthew, and we are in the last part of chapter 12. Uh, and when we come to the end of chapter 12, we've actually been, chapters 11 and 12 are kind of this one contained unit. And it's all about opposition to Jesus and confrontation of the two kingdoms. In chapter 11, we saw John the Baptist kind of questioning, are you really the right person? And we saw uh, the cities that rejected Jesus. And then, so you have those two confrontations. Then we have this moment where Jesus reveals more of who he is, this portrait that he is this gentle and lowly savior. Then in the first half of chapter 12 last week, we saw two, another two confrontations. One in the grain fields on the Sabbath and another in the synagogue on the Sabbath with Jesus healing, which is which again is followed by another portrait of who Jesus is, that he's the fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy, that Jesus is the one that's come, who's the Lord of mercy and the Lord of justice. He will bring righteousness to bear, but in the process, he won't stamp out a smoldering wick or, bruise, or reject a bruised reed. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 12, the last bit today, again, we have two stories of confrontation followed by a picture or a portrait of who Christ is. Uh, it's a longer passage today, and so we're not going to read it to begin because otherwise it would just take too long. We'll read it as we go. Uh, but one of the things that is happening in this passage is that we're coming to the crux of this chapter. We're coming to the part where... Um, Matthew is bringing his argument to a close. In chapter 10, he said, expect opposition. And now we're getting to the end of all these stories of opposition. And Jesus is going to lay down a choice, a choice for every single human being. First and foremost, for the people in our story, but it extends to us. And in this choice, there is no neutrality possible. There's no middle ground. There's no kind of Goldilocks perfect middle. It's either this or that. It's either Christ or not. And so I thought it'd be interesting to begin this morning by kind of helping us to feel the weight of making those this or that choices in a very trivial way uh, before we jump in. So if you're playing at home, um, what we're going to do is we're going to play a game called this or that, which I used to do with my students when I was a teacher at Barker. And for the first one, if you think it's that, you go hands on your head. And if you like the second option, put your hands on your butt. So you might need to stand or, I don't know, you can sit down if you like. But so this, you can play at home. And if you're on your own, you can watch the screens, however it's working for you. I'm going to give you a few choices, but you're only allowed this or that. You can't go like that and have both. Okay, not, not allowed. So here we go. First one, Coke or Pepsi. Coke or Pepsi? And penance, you have to choose one. You can't say no soft drinks. They're from the devil. Not a choice. Coke or Pepsi? All right, second one. Dogs or cats? Dogs or cats? I think I need to go to gallery view. I want to see what everyone's doing here. Let's go view. I'm going to see. Okay, dogs. Dogs are winning out. Not many cat people here. Okay, next one, a food one. Thai food or Japanese food? Thai food 
or Japanese cuisine? Ooh, it's a pretty even split. I can see some split households. Deb, Deborah's all about the Thai, Shinu, all about the Japanese. <laughs> all right, next one. Apple or Android? Apple or Android? Ooh, I'm all about the Apple. I'm listening to the Steve Jobs biography at the moment. It's 26 hours, but it's making me like Apple even more. All right, really important one. You go down to your local greasy food store. What do you order? Kebab or snack pack? Kebab or snack pack? I'm going, like, that's kebab, snack pack. It's very important. Gee, lots of kebabs. I'm all about the snack pack, chili and garlic. Go get on Jimmy's kebabs, baby. Okay. Ma'am, maybe I shouldn't do all of these, but I'm sort of enjoying it. Would you prefer bush or beach? Go to the bush, kind of country retreat. We know where the pedits are going. Or beach. I'm all about the beach. All right. This one's a hard one for some. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Oh, coffee wins out. We are addicted. It's the only psychoactive drug that Christians can take. And we love it. We love it. All right. Last one. Okay, last one. This will be divisive. Bath or shower? Bath or shower? Uh, I'm shower. I love a shower. All right. Awesome. All right. You can stop playing at home. Um, when I used to do this as a teacher, uh, you know, students would, I'd make them move from one end of the room to the other. And I love the indecision. And, and then we started doing it. I started doing it when we were teaching ethics and um, you would give really hard ethical choices and they never wanted to go to one end or the other. There's, there's something about the middle ground that, kind of feels safe, it feels warm, it feels cozy. Uh, but Jesus in this, and Matthew is trying to teach us in this section that there is no neutrality. There's no perfect middle ground when it comes to your view of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the main point that Matthew's going to show us today in this passage is that it's Jesus above all others, that we are to choose Jesus above all others. And there's three points. Jesus above Satan, which is probably an easy choice. Jesus above signs and Jesus above all. Let's jump into our passage and look at the first point, Jesus above Satan. Let's read from Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. So the context, they've just come out of the grain fields. They're, they've had this, all these healings that happened in the synagogue. And now it looks like there's another healing. And we don't know if it's at the exact same time, but nonetheless, Matthew puts it in here to kind of give narrative continuance. Imagine this scene. Then a demon-oppressed man, so a man who's been attacked and demonized, who was blind and mute, presumably by the impact of the demon, was brought to him, that is brought to Jesus, 
and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. It's easy to read over Bible miracle stories and just be like, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus healed him. But again, imagine being there in that scenario. This guy is being led along. He's blind. You ask him a question. He can't even reply because he can't speak. He's mute. He's, he's so afflicted by this horrible demonic force, this power of evil. And then Jesus, you know, it says here, it doesn't say how he did it. It just says that Jesus healed him. And the effect is transformative and instantaneous. The man's eyes, suddenly, the optic nerves begin to work again. His vocal cords have strength and produce a resonance. And, and now you can hear his voice. Now he can see. And the, what's the first thing likely that he sees? The Lord Jesus Christ, the man who healed him. It's a beautiful and amazing scene. And if we read on, we'll see that it elicits two reactions. Verse 23. The reactions from the crowd and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? The crowds are seeing this incredible figure who has authority and power over spiritual forces that can heal people in an instant. And they're amazed and they're wondering. And they ask this question, can this be the son of David? That is, can this guy be the Messiah. They're seeing power, but they're not seeing pomp. You know, King David ruled and he ruled with glory and splendor and majesty and robes and armies and strength and swords and spears. And, you know, that's what David looked like. He was a worshiper and he was a powerful figure. But here's this gentle and lowly guy, meek and humble, a teacher, doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. And so the crowd's perceive the power, but don't quite understand his full identity. Can this be the Messiah? Uh, that's Bible talk for, can this be the promised one who will take away all of our problems? You know, every election, uh, each political figure is kind of Messiahized. We think if we vote in this person, they will save us from economic problems. They will save us from moral problems. They will save us from injustices. Well, the people are thinking, is this guy that guy, the one saviour for Israel? But then comes the next reaction, verse 24. Again, this division with the Pharisees. And in fact, if you remember in chapter 9, it's quite similar to a demon possession exorcism story we've already seen. So whether or not it's the same story and now Matthew's commentating on it differently or it's a, it's a new miracle is not the point. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, oh, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. It is only by Beelzebub or Beelzebul, depending on your translation, that, this prince of that the, prin the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You see, in this, um, in this reply, the Pharisees, have already made their decision in chapter 12, verse 14. They want to put Jesus to death. He's such a threat. He's such a blasphemer. They want to get rid of him. And so now, contrary to the evidence that Jesus is powerful over these beings, they now try and slur him in front of the crowds. They hate this idea that the crowds are thinking that this guy is the Messiah. So they do what every good, you know, politician does. They smear their opponent. 
They try and make everyone, the crowd think this guy is terrible. You wouldn't want to follow him. He does this. Do you know how he gets his power? It's not because he's a, he's from God. It's because he's powered by Satan. Uh, this word Belzebub or Belzebul is most likely a reference uh, to you know, old worship in the pagan nations, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of uh, death and disease and disgust. And how horrible, how abhorrent that they are attributing this saving and transformative power, the kingdom of God, to Satan himself. So much their heart has arisen against the Lord Jesus. And so there's these two responses. Is he the Messiah or is he a maniac, a demon-possessed madman? I wonder what you think. I wonder what your view of Jesus is. Most of us probably grow up with him being some kind of um, nice guy. But it, it's only one or the other. Now, let's have a look at how Jesus responds. Uh, we saw last week that Jesus is really great at asking questions and, and arguing in a way that kind of deconstructs the argument. This time, Jesus is going to deconstruct the argument, not with scripture, but with logic, with the use of reason, which gives a place for that in apologetics and, and the way that we try and talk about the Christian faith. Look at verse 25, and we're going to see three logical rebuttals. Verse 25 is the first one. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus here is just making a very simple argument. If you have a kingdom or a nation or a city that goes to war, if there's a civil war, it's going to crumble. Look at Syria. You know, it's going to be destroyed. It can't last for long. And so Jesus is saying, you're saying that Satan gave me the power to cast himself out? Have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? Then in verse 27, he adds another argument. And if I cast out demons by Belzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So presumably some of the followers of Pharisees and, and the people that they accepted were actually practicing this same thing, that they, by God's grace, were given the power to cast out demons. And yet now the Pharisees are accusing Jesus that the only way he can do it is if he's empowered by Satan. And so he's using this logic. Well, if your sons do it, and I'm doing the same thing. Well, you're condemning yourself because you don't condemn them. And then the third argument he used to refute them is in verse 29. Or he, he supposes a parable. How can someone enter a strong man's house? Like how could someone go into David's house and plunder his goods? Not going to happen. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder the house. Uh, this is pitting up this war, this kind of, you know, comic picture almost of Satan and good versus evil, Jesus versus Satan. And what Jesus is saying is the only way I can do this is not because I'm with Satan. It's because I'm more powerful than him. I have greater strength than him. I bust into his house and I have bound the strong man and I'm plundering his goods. I'm stealing back what he's stolen from the kingdom of God and I'm now laying him waste. 
So rather than me being on Satan's team, it's the opposite. This is proof that I've got him in a chokehold and I'm stripping him of everything he has. So Jesus puts these three arguments together. And he comes to this powerful conclusion in verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Instead of being in league with Satan, empowered by Satan or a lackey to Satan, instead Jesus is claiming that his miracles come from the pure and holy source of the Holy Spirit of God. Eternal God empowers him. And the proof now that he, you know, is, is that the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, the whole time Jesus has been saying the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now he's saying, if I can bind the strong man, if I have power over these demons, this is proof the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of Satan began in the garden when Eve and Adam first took the fruit and that cursed serpent, that black force has been over all human history, almost without bound, without, without stopping, without any way of holding him back completely. But now a new kingdom has entered, the final and triumphant kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God over Satan is in the room. It's here. This is an incredible statement. We don't have enough time to unpack it today, but it's worth studying. It's worth thinking about the implications that the strong man has been bound. And if you align yourself with Jesus, you're on the strong man's, you're on the new strong man's team. Sorry, David, you've been bound and uh, Noah's in control now. <laughs> All right. That, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Anyway. And so this leads, so we've got the kind of confrontation and then we've got Jesus' rebuttals with this conclusion, actually it's by the spirit of God. And then now this leads us to the pointy end, the choice, verse 30. Crowds, you've got your two responses. What are you going to do? And Jesus looks everyone in the eyes and says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here, Jesus is making a sobering call. You gotta imagine, like, he hasn't died, he hasn't resurrected, he doesn't have an army, money, power, prestige, or wealth. The, the religious leaders, the establishment of the time, think he's possessed by Satan. And Jesus is leaning over to everyone and saying, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Is, is separated, is, is cast out like chaff in the wind, if you remember Psalm 1. And notice that Jesus here makes no neutrality possible. Whoever is not with me. So you have to be with him. You can't just be, well, I'm not yet decided or I'm in the middle. No, no, no. Jesus says you must choose me and align yourself to me. Now, you may be thinking of another passage where Jesus seems to contradict himself. You may know Mark 9.40, where he says, For the one who is not against us is for us. For the one who is not against us is for us. But here Jesus is not actually contradicting himself. He's saying two different things. 
in the context of Mark chapter 9, verse 40, the disciples are frustrated because uh, they're watching someone else cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but they're not one of the disciples following Jesus. And they're like, should we tell him to stop? Should we get rid of him? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Whoever's not against me is for us. But in that passage, Jesus is mainly talking about how do we view other people that aren't in our little tribe and our little kingdom? So in a corporate sense, we're to not condemn or, or judge first and foremost. And so when we see other people who don't line up with us exactly, well, if they're not against Christ, then they're for us in a sense. But here in our passage, Jesus is talking individually. He's talking to you and I, and he's saying, you're either with me or against me. You know your own heart, friends. Everyone listening here, you know whether you are with Jesus or not. And so he asks you to make a choice. And then what he does in the, in the next you know, verse four, uh, six verses, verse 31 to 37, is he lays down two warnings for the people and for us who are listening. Warnings that should resonate and, and just make us always question and be testing our heart and our soul. Are we really in? Am I really for Jesus? What happens if I want to just walk away for a time and, and follow and go somewhere else? Well, and both of them have to do with our words and final judgment. So they're very sobering, but they're not just warnings. I want you to see this, and this is really exciting. I saw this from one commentator and I agreed with him. They are gracious warnings. They are sobering warnings, but they are gracious warnings. So let's have a look. Verse 31 to 32, a problem passage for many, but hopefully I'll help you understand it this morning. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, most Christians I know at some point have wondered, oh, no, have I committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Am I cast out from the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's have a look. In these two verses, it follows this sort of A, B, A, B pattern. So Jesus says two things. First thing he says is that everyone who sins against, even against him, even against his name, and against who he is and blasphemes him, any sin like that can be forgiven. So there's a class of sins, forgivable sins, and they can be forgiven. Why? Because they can be repented of. Because you can do what we did at the start of today's service. You can confess your sins and receive full forgiveness. If you recognize that you're a sinner, you can have that forgiveness. So that's one class of sins, forgivable sins. But then there comes this, the second half, or like it kind of goes in a pattern. Blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks against the spirit will not be forgiven. These, these two statements. What does Jesus mean here? Well, remember, we need to take this verse in context. And in context, he's talking to the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees who have been with us since, you know, maybe even the Sermon on the Mount, they've seen miracle upon miracle. They've heard teaching upon teaching. They've seen the power of God manifest in front of their eyes. They've seen the love of God in Christ, the mercy of God in Christ. And now they've hardened their hearts like Pharaoh. They've turned their hearts, which could have repented of their sin, but now they've calcified and hardened their heart, plotted to kill Jesus, and now accusing the work that Jesus is doing as being by Satan, not by the Spirit. And so these types of sins, Jesus is warning them. He's not necessarily saying that they've committed it, but he's warning them that the sins of complete calcification or hardening of your heart will not be forgiven. And the reason they won't be forgiven is because that type of person will not seek repentance. The reason why it's an unforgivable sin is because you've hardened your heart so much that you no longer feel sorry for that sin. You no longer want to confess it. You no longer want to come to God and say, I'm sorry that I, I blaspheme the name of the Son of God. And so there is no forgiveness. And that's why it works. Uh, that's why how it makes sense. And so he's warning them, and he's warning each one of us. Maybe you've been coming to church a long time. Maybe you've got this religious connection or background. Maybe you've even felt conviction of sin. You know there's something wrong within you. Maybe you curse the name of God or you blaspheme his name when you're angry, you swear, or when things go wrong, you curse his name and say, how dare you, God? And you feel this thing in your heart. That's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is warning and saying, if you continue to calcify your heart and not repent and not recognize that Jesus is Lord, you will never receive forgiveness because you will never turn to him for it. On the other hand, if you're worried that you've committed this sin, it's most likely that you haven't. Because the fear that you have of committing it, the, the guilt that you have that maybe you've blasphemed the Spirit of God is a sign that you have the Spirit of God. It's a sign that you are, you know, convicted and um, softened to the Word. And so, friends, if you are worried about committing this sin or that you've committed it um, and you are in Christ, you need not be worried. You can repent of all sins. Now, remember, I said that these are warnings, but they're gracious warnings. And so this warning, I want us to notice the grace in it as well. It's severe, but it's gracious. Remember, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy. No matter what you've done can be forgiven. No matter who you are can be forgiven. No matter the sexual acts you've done or watched or viewed online, no matter the ways that you've gossiped or cheated or, or lied, or um, no matter what you've done in your life, ethically, morally, every sin and blasphemy, even if you grew up in a different religion and you worshipped other gods and you cursed Jesus' name, if you repent, every sin will be forgiven. So repent and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and see his grace to you. And the second warning, so that's the first warning. The second warning comes in verses 33 to 37. 
and I'll, I'll just read it briefly and, and comment on it briefly and finish this point. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. And now Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees what, he th- what type of tree he thinks they are. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of the good treasure, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's frightening, isn't it? For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. The warning he's saying here to the Pharisees is, you can't just say these words that are, you know, I do this by the power of Satan. Your words reveal your heart. You can't just say, oh, no offense, but, or just joking. There's no way of getting out of it. What you say reflects who you are. And what they are saying reflects that they have an evil heart. They have an evil root. Therefore, they produce and bring forth evil speech. And they will be judged for every careless word they have spoken. It's a warning, friends. What we say in our head or in our actual lips reveals where our hearts truly are. This this principle is true for choosing whether to follow Christ or not, but it's even true in a sense for once you have followed Christ. The thoughts we have, the the things we say reveal what we really value and love. And Jesus is warning us all, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. So what's coming out of your mouth? Praise and worship of Jesus Christ or all manner of evil? But again, this is a gracious warning because the message that Jesus Christ came to bring is that you can change the root of your heart, not by your power, not by trying really hard to say good things all the time. But anyone who is born again receives a whole new root structure and can now produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so the grace in this warning to any soft-hearted Pharisee or anyone listening is, oh, no, my speech reveals an evil heart. Oh, I have an evil heart. What am I meant to do? Oh, come to Christ, be born again and receive a new heart so you can speak good fruit and be judged rightly and be held righteous in God's sight through Christ on Judgment Day. So there's the warnings. You can only choose Christ. Which one are you going to choose, Christ or not? If you don't choose Christ, you will be judged. you're, You're blaspheming the spirit. You're producing evil out of your heart, and you will not avoid judgment on judgment day. And so Matthew is trying to help us see through this story that we are to choose Jesus above all else. It's only in Jesus that there's safety and salvation that our words matter and what we think and believe about Jesus matters. It's point number one, and that's the long point. Don't worry. Well, the next two points are a lot shorter because all the work is sort of done there. 
Now let's go to the second confrontation, Jesus above signs in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, this wasn't a healthy kind of like, I'm still, I'm just undecided, God, help me to understand. This is a, a throw down, prove yourself. Now, they've already seen so many signs, so many miracles, so many amazing things. that It's likely that they're now asking for something from heaven, you know, not for the Red Sea to part, but for manna to fall down so to speak. They want to see God do something to vindicate Jesus Christ. They want to know that he's not just some magician, you know, fooling everyone, but that he's actually from God. And so he's calling upon God to come down and most likely and show a sign to prove who he really is. Maybe you've experienced this when you're outside of Christ. I remember when I taught at Barker, a lot of the kids would be like, but if Jesus was just here, then I would believe. Well, Jesus is just here with them, uh, and they still didn't believe. So Jesus replies, and you'll see that signs isn't really what we need. It's not how the kingdom of heaven works. Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous, that is spiritual adultery, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And this is the sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's an interesting one. Now, the book of John talks about that Jesus performed many signs, and in that sense, it means more of these powers. But here Jesus is saying, the great heavenly vindication of myself will not come through you know, this fantastic flame or a fiery pillar or smoke or anything like that, glory feeling, the sign from heaven will be this. Just like Jonah was good as dead, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, I will be dead. I will be buried in the heart of the earth. I will die. But in three days, I will arise. Here, Jesus, for the first time, is pointing to his death and resurrection the great and true and only sign that we need, the historical sign, the powerful sign, the vindicatory sign of God that God is approved of this man, that he would die, be crucified and risen again. And so there's, Jesus is drawing himself to be similar uh, to the prophet Jonah, but not completely similar, obviously. So there's a similarity. Jesus, you know, kind of preaches repentance and and people are saved and he ends up dead for as good as dead dead for three days in a fish but there's lots of dissimilarity as well you know jonah was a reluctant prophet jonah had a really bad attitude jonah wasn't nice and he didn't want people to repent uh, now jonah was in a belly of a fish for three nights jesus wasn't in the earth for three nights so jesus isn't pulling a complete parallel um, even though if you do jewish counting of days jesus actually did die for three days and, and was three nights as well. Nonetheless, there's similarities and there's differences, but the sign is meant to cut through. And it's a sign that they have to believe in that they haven't even seen yet. But for you or I, this is the sign that marks out belief in Christ. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? I should have drawn it on my hand, but 
Noah wants to get this tattoo that has a, um, a down symbol, a cross, a, a, a grave, an up symbol, and a down symbol to explain the gospel. That Jesus Christ came down to earth. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He rose from the grave, and he's coming back to judge. That's the basic facts of the gospel. That's the sign that we all need to believe. And so he gives them a choice. In verse 41 to 43, he pulls these two kind of Old Testament um, stories and, and he calls for a response from them. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So these Gentile sinners, the worst of the worst, the Assyrian nation who was against the people of God, even they repented, and yet the crowds won't. And they'll rise up in judgment against them. And Jesus is saying, I'm greater than the prophets. I'm greater than Jonah. And then verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, you can go to 1 Kings to read that story. But he's saying even this Gentile queen from a distant land came in and believed in Solomon and loved Solomon. And yet you reject me. And he's saying, I am greater even than Solomon. And so Jesus is in this whole chapter is said he's He's above the temple. He's greater than the temple. So he's greater than the whole priest system. He's above Satan in every spiritual realm. He's above the prophets in Jonah. He's above even King Solomon. He's above all. And he's looking at them and saying, believe in me, trust me, follow me. And if you don't, you have no excuse. And these people will rise up and judge you on the final day. And then he goes on to provide warning against spiritual ruin. Again, it's a warning against neutrality. You can't just kind of sort of align yourself with Jesus, sweep the house and make it clean. You have to fully enter into the kingdom. Otherwise, you set yourself up for spiritual ruin. Verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Again, this, this is a warning. Don't just slightly align yourself don't just think yeah he's a nice guy embrace jesus christ and become his follower otherwise you invite great spiritual ruin and if you look at israel in ad 70 they were taken over completely and destroyed by the romans and partly in fulfillment of this prophetic word so this leads to our final section and where matthew brings it all together and calls for a decision this is point number three, Jesus above all. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So 
now we're getting to the tightest and closest bit, his very own family. In Mark's gospel, we see that they're actually a bit outraged at him. They think he's lost his mind. He's been preaching and teaching. He hasn't even eaten. All these people are surrounding him. Everyone's angry at him. And his family want to get to him and be like, psh, 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 Jesus, wake up. What are you doing? This is not what you're meant to be doing. And then if you notice that there's no verse 47, um, that's just a textual thing that we're not sure if it was in the original manuscript or not. So the ESV drops it out. But basically verse 47 in the ESV would have said, the exact same thing as verse 46, except a man came and told Jesus that your mother and brother are looking for you. So how does Jesus reply? Even to his own family, he makes this final call, this final no neutrality, this decision. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And I love this, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, in this culture and perhaps in your culture, family, man, is above all. I mean, it's absolutely central to your entire system of life, your inheritance, your money, your values, your system, your worship to honor your father and mother. But Jesus here is setting himself up and saying, above even your own family, you must choose me. The only way to enter the kingdom of God is through me. It's not through being religious or scrupulous like the Pharisees. It's not even through being related to someone who is connected to me. The only way into the kingdom is through your alignment to me that you must do what the will of the Father is, and that is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we have to dissociate from our families or repudiate our families and say, now I'm a Christian, you're last, and I don't even think I like you anymore. No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that there is no neutrality. There's no sort of like, well, you know, God and family, they're kind of similar. He's saying that when it comes to doing the will of God, you must choose me over everything else. There's no room for Jesus to be second place. He is supreme. He's one in all spheres of life, in everything, even in family. For, for many Christians around the world, they know this. They know that to choose Christ is to lose family. To choose Christ is to suffer, uh, uh, to potentially have the threat of loss of family, beatings, removal of all inheritance, privileges, position. But even for us, even for us here in Australia, where it might not necessarily mean that, though it will for some who we reach out to, this is a call for us to evaluate is Jesus number one in my life? Is he above all? And a good way to test that is to consider some different this or that. If to fulfill, you know, that last verse, verse 50, that anyone who obeys the will of my father is my mother or my brother or my sister, would you choose God's will? Would you choose following Christ 
even if it meant losing something else. So what if a bang God meant a choice between Jesus or career progression? There may come a time where your allegiance to Jesus Christ may mean you're stagnant in your career, your earning power, because you just can't make those decisions, you can't make those sins, or they just hate Jesus and they don't want you to have a position further up. Who would you choose? Similarly, Jesus or finishing your uni degree. One of my pastors was on his way um, when I was a teenager to doing his PhD, but the university wouldn't allow him to do um, an anti-Marxist PhD uh, and his supervisor wouldn't put, pass it through. And so he had to abandon his PhD. Would you choose Jesus or finishing your uni degree? What if following, I'm not, these aren't guarantees, but I'm saying, but what if, to, to help us understand our hearts, what if obeying God's will and following Jesus meant a choice between Jesus or ever being able to purchase property? Which would you choose? Now, we're rich, we're Western, we're upwardly mobile, we're progressive. We want both Jesus and career, Jesus and house, Jesus and degree, Jesus and whatever it is. But what if you had to choose? That's where Jesus is driving out here. There's no neutral ground. What if obeying God meant a choice between being Jesus, uh, following Jesus or being single for the rest of your life for whatever reason? Jesus or nice holidays, Jesus or whatever it is that comes to your mind or your heart, whatever it is that is most captivating to you. For some, it might be family, but for others, there might be these other things that are even more important. In this section, Jesus is looking at us all in the eye and saying, Jesus above all else. It's a me above all. What would you choose? Be honest with yourself. Would you really choose Jesus above all? My friends, I, I hope that you will. I pray that you will. You see, if you, convicted by the Spirit, continue to choose Jesus above all and follow in the will of God, well, then he leans over and points at you and says, you are my brother. You are my sister. When you choose Jesus above all, he becomes our brother in Christ. Oh, he becomes our brother. We become co-heirs with Christ. We inherit the kingdom. We have a glorious future awaiting for us. We have all of our sins forgiven. We have eternity. That's what we have when we choose Jesus above all. There's no neutral ground. Whoever is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, friends, if you're not yet a Christian, you need to choose Christ today. We do not know when the final judgment will be, when every careless word will be weighed against God's holy standard. Choose Christ today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he rose from the grave and believe in him and you will be saved. For those of us who have chosen Christ, never deviate, friends. Continue to obey the will of the Father. 
his kingdom come, his will be done no matter what. No matter the the opportunity, no matter the compromise, no matter the temptation, no matter the threat, it is Jesus above all. And in Jesus, we receive all. So choose Jesus today in your heart, in your mind, and in your soul. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we have this text. Convict us, shape us, and move us to choose your son every day, to pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done, to obey you even when it means sacrificing comfort and health and um, progress and education and whatever it means, Lord. Would you set apart your son Jesus as Lord of our hearts? And will we live in the joy of it? In Jesus' name, amen.